welcome to the April 26th version of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Delaney Howell, and joining me is my fabulous co-host, Mike. Mike, I gotta ask you, I don't know what you do all day long. What do you do? Well, nobody does, and I prefer to keep it that way. <laughs> you know, if, if I say out loud what I do all day, then my wife's gonna find out what I do all day, and then she'll make me do other stuff. Well, you don't really have like a full, I mean, you have lots of jobs, but you just don't have like an eight to five job. So I just never really know. No, I bounce around. I keep, I've been welding today, building I okay. play a grader scraper to uh, level the driveway, level the feed yard, got a sprayer fix so I can go and, you know, a little late, but spray my pastures and get everything Good. ready and uh, did a little bit of fence repair earlier in the day. And All then right. I went to the gym, which was Good. horrible. Oh, come on. No, it was. I'm honest to goodness. I am just, I'm exhausted and my head hurts and I'm just not built for exercise. Pearson's, <laughs> we exercise by putting food in our mouths. That's I was just about to say, uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So anyway, that's that was my day, Delaney. How about you? Busy day so far? I have had a busy day. I had a shoot, a video shoot, not shooting. Gotcha. Um <laughs> For Iowa Public Television, because that is my other job, amongst others. But, yeah, we had a kids' clubhouse shoot. So I work for the educational show on Iowa Public Television, and we uh, were at an elementary school doing some video shooting today. Perfect. That sounds exciting. It was. Yeah. So now, do we have anything exciting going on in the world of agriculture today? We always have things that are exciting going on in the world of agriculture, uh, let's see. First up, I'll start with Purdue, an update on Sonny Purdue, the now confirmed Secretary of Agriculture. He um, has meetings on Thursday with the EU Ag Commissioner, Paul Hogan, and I believe on their agenda, hopefully will be trade, but an area of concern is the hormone-treated beef, which the EU currently has a ban on. That might be another possible market for uh, the beef industry to export if Sunny Purdue can better relations and maybe discuss some possibilities of getting into that European market. Yeah, or really maybe just knock some sense into the heads of those Europeans. Hormone-treated beef has fewer amounts of, a, and I forget if it's nano picometers, I, I don't know, it's all metric something, but it has less estrogen in it than a serving of broccoli. So hormone-treated okay. beef is not a scare at all, but it's one of those things that plays well in headlines. Hopefully, Sonny Purdue can take that uh, that good old southern Georgia accent and uh, square them around over there. Right, definitely. But you have other news on Purdue, well, don't yes, you, Mike? I sure do, and so that's what I was going to jump to. It was pretty interesting. Today, Sonny Purdue really kicked it off with a farm roundtable discussion he met with, oh gosh, looks like about 14 people representing all different aspects of agriculture. We had a farmer from Oklahoma, farmer from Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Georgia, Minnesota, Kansas, and Florida, California, North Carolina. Bill Northey from Iowa was in there. Uh, a guy, uh, Jose Rojas from Colorado Springs. He's farm operations for Hormel. And I believe Valerie Early, yes, is the uh, National FFA Central Region Vice President, was there as well. So he kind oh. of got oh, everybody yeah, I saw in that on Facebook mm -hmm. and said, hey, you know, what do we need to be doing? What should we be uh, talking about? And hopefully they got some good stuff out there. And I believe that meeting is over. I believe it was this morning. Yes, it was. Yep. So we'll uh, be sure to update you tomorrow as we get uh, more news out of what they discussed. 
Yeah, that sounds good. Um, also, I just wanted to mention this, but my dad avidly listens to our podcast, and he texted me earlier today Thanks, saying, <laughs> "Yeah, he texted me earlier today saying that." The Big Show on WHO, which I have nothing against The Big Show, but apparently we were headline breakers yesterday with the announcement of Northy possibly looking at positions within the USDA because The Big Show didn't report on it until today. So I thought that was pretty exciting for us. That's fantastic. And you know you're a true journalist when you pat yourself on the back for something. That's how you know. I know. know that's that's what it. I was so, thinking. That's yeah, right. We, we win. Let's see. Any other news you got there, Delaney? I do have a few other snippets of information. We have finally received confirmation that the Iowa governor, Terry Branstead, will get his chance to have his Senate hearing with the Foreign Relations Committee, and that hearing will be next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Okay, good. So then hopefully we can sail right through and we can get him shipped right. off to China and uh, get some open up some market opportunities that's right you know one of the big opportunities in china of course is beef and protein and we had news came out monday with regard to that cliven bundy case the uh, ranch standoff from 2014 a judge a federal judge gloria navarro basically declared a mistrial on four of the defendants two of them were found guilty on some of the charges uh let's see burleson was found guilty of assaulting a federal officer and Todd Engel was found guilty of obstruction of justice. The other four were given a mistrial, and they have already set a new trial date of June 26th. So we will continue to track that as the uh, slow march towards justice continues in the, uh, the Bundy Ranch uh, uh, folder all. You know what else we forgot to report on yesterday that What's you that? mentioned afterwards? Chris Souls, who is on The Bachelor two or three years ago, um, was arrested for drunk driving the other day. Well, now, has he been arrested for drunk I thought... driving? He was arrested for, so for those that uh, haven't seen this story, and it was on Good Morning America, I mean, it's been everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, he was driving home in his pickup truck, rear-ended a tractor driven by Kenneth Mosier of Aurora, Iowa, and both vehicles went into the ditch, and uh, Kenneth Mosier, the farmer that uh, Mr. Souls hit, um, unfortunately passed away on the scene. Yeah, that's and right. And there was a call made. Chris Souls called uh, 911, stuck around, performed CPR, and then sometime after the emergency responders got there, but before the police got there, uh, he left the scene. And so now they're, you know, doing investigations. You know, was he intoxicated? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what does all this look go for but okay it's, it's a really tough situation up there yeah. in that small community of arlington and aurora iowa where you know everybody knows both parties and yeah just just a, a heartbreaking deal folks while you're out there and you're celebrating finishing putting that uh, final couple of seeds in the ground you crack open a couple of brews be careful driving home have a designated driver and if you're in a tractor be sure to have your lights on and uh, try to be as visible as possible and Hopefully, folks mm -hmm. will pay attention. I mean, it's heartbreaking situation all the way around, but, uh, you know, hopefully it's a reminder to uh, all the rest of us. You got any other news, Delaney? Yeah, I just wanted to bring an update on some wildfire news. Uh, this article comes from AgWeb, which is powered by the Farm Journal. And they said that um, recovery efforts are continuing in Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. 
And so far, the grand total has been 1.6 million acres that have been destroyed. But that's not even the worst part, they say. So according to the latest estimates, as many as 18,000 miles of fences were lost in the four states, which will cost up to $10,000 per mile. In total, obviously, that's $180 million for fences alone. So there hasn't been a lot in the media coming from the government. President Trump, I don't think, has given a statement to my knowledge, and there just hasn't been a lot of support. So the Howard G. Buffett Foundation has decided to join forces with Drovers and Farm Journal to raise money for wildfire victims. And uh, let's see, Howard Buffett says that he is uh, going to match up to $1 million of donations. So if you're interested in donating... The site is www.wildfirereliefund.org, and the uh, Relief Fund Challenge ends July 31st. So the only other thing I wanted to mention in regards to wildfires, this article was in the Iowa Farm Bureau, Henry County. Um, Basically, the article is just talking about a group from Henry County that took a convoy and went to Ashland, Kansas, where a majority of the wildfires were the worst, I would say. But they uh, talked to the Gardner brothers, which apparently I think is a larger farm in the area. Yep, and pretty, pretty large ranch down there. A lot of uh, well-known Angus genetics come out of the Gardner yeah, ranch. Right. So this uh, this is a quote directly from the newspaper. Um, it was one of the Gardner brothers. He said he expressed their frustration with the lack of governmental response or even acknowledgement of the widespread destruction. That tells you right there how bad the situation is. Yeah, that is, uh, it is tough. And uh, those fires were from March 6th through the 8th. So coming up here in May, it will be their two-month anniversary. And Delaney, I believe you and I will plan on having another discussion um, with some of those folks affected just to see what all has happened in the in the last two months. And unfortunately, it doesn't yeah. sound like a lot. Well, uh, okay, this is also to put you on the spot, Mike. Natalina Sense and I, who we've had on our podcast previously, and will finish her Why I Farm road trip here in the next 30 days. Uh, she called me the other night and actually was talking to me to see if maybe you and I and a couple others in the journalism ag voice type of industry would be willing to go and you know, put in our time and interview some people there. We're thinking maybe June, so uh, maybe we'll just be part of the movement and go see it for ourselves. Yeah, and I think that's a great idea as long as we're not going to be in the way. You know, that's one of those things that we saw it after Hurricane Katrina. We see it after these catastrophes where folks who want to get the story out, I think with the best of intentions, go down and then they make things worse for those actually trying to do good. So we will, yeah, I'm all on board with that. We'll uh, we'll work with our connections down there in Kansas and Oklahoma and uh, hopefully go down, tell the story, and lend a hand as well. That's right. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. Lenny, I just have one other piece of news before we get to the markets. President Trump signed an executive order today ordering the Department of Interior to review all of the ground that has been named a national monument over the past 20 years. Any site larger than 100,000 acres. This is one of those things that uh, those of us in rural America, um, I, I would say, tend to 
be fairly excited about. Once ground is designated a national monument, there's very, very little that we can do with it. And of course, a lot of this ground that is federally owned out in the West has been for generations uh, ranch ground or mining ground and so forth and so on. And so with this review, the idea is perhaps the Department of the Interior can transfer some of that power, some of that oversight back to the states and local jurisdictions to uh, utilize that land in the best way possible. So we will continue to follow that. He's going to have some pushback on it as it goes forward, but we'll uh, we'll keep you updated with what's going on there in D.C. That sounds good, Mike. Do you want to give us today's closing market prices before we get to our interview? I sure do. Thanks, Delaney. Let's take a look at the markets. It was a lot of red on the screen today as we start in the corn pit. May corn closed down six cents on the day. 3.59 even is where she closed. December new crop corn down four and three quarter cents. Finished at 3.84 and a quarter. Over in soybeans, May beans closed down eight and three quarter cents, finishing at 9.45 and three quarters. Novi beans down seven and three quarters, closed at 9.54 even. Over in wheat, another down day. May wheat dropped one penny, finishing at 407 and three quarters. December wheat closed down two and a quarter, finishing at 462 even. Jumping over on the livestock side, oh, a lot of green on the livestock, at least in the cattle trade. April live cattle closed up $2.20, finishing at 132.02 and a half, getting closer to that cash price. June live cattle closed up $2.70, finishing at 118.52 and a half. I believe that is a contract high. Looking at feeder cattle, the April contract rose a dollar. 12 and a half, finishing at 139.85. And here's the big news. May feeder cattle, oh, not quite limit up. $4.40 higher, closed at 142, seven and a half cents. Lean hogs, though, they bucked the bullish trend. May lean hogs dropped 55 cents, closing at 64.67 and a half. June lean hogs dropped a dollar at seven and a half cents, finishing at 70.75. Looking at milk, the May contract rose one penny, closing the day at 15. 33. And with that, we are going to have a discussion. In fact, while we are getting ready to talk to our expert today, I am going to read the crude oil price. Light Sweet Crude, the June contract dropped 33 cents. We're still under $50. It closed at 49.23. So Delaney, I mentioned the price of crude oil just uh, as an introduction, I suppose, to our guest today. Can you tell us who we're talking to? I would love to. We're talking to Dr. Franek Hashuk. He's currently a professor at Iowa State University. Joining us now is Dr. Franek Hashuk. He is currently a professor at Iowa State University, but in his former life, he worked for a major oil company as a petroleum geologist. Franek, tell us what that was like and what you were responsible for. Uh, sure. So I uh, lived in Houston for about four years and worked for a major oil company. Um, my job as petroleum geologist was to help find new deposits of oil, as well as to help understand already discovered deposits um, in a better way and think of new places to drill wells and uh, new technologies to apply to old wells to get them uh, pumping better. Wow, so you spent four years in the field in this industry, is that right? Um, I was mostly in the office, but on, on occasions I would be uh, dispatched to different parts of the United States or the world to um, look at core samples from different wells. Okay, can you, can you talk a little bit about 
we hear it in the news all the time. The folks in North Dakota and the folks in Texas and the Permian Basin are familiar with it. But what is hydraulic fracturing and what does it mean for oil production? Yeah, hydraulic fracturing has been in the news a lot lately, partly because it's such a new technology. Or I should say the scale on which it's being done is new. Um, hydraulic fracturing has been around for decades in the oil industry. It was just a much smaller operation. And so now it's the a typical hydraulic fracturing job uses a lot more water um, and it's drilling a lot deeper. And so it involves um, a lot more impact on the local environment. But hydraulic fracturing essentially is drilling down into a formation and then pumping up the pressure inside your well until that reservoir rock breaks. And um, you're essentially manufacturing a plumbing system in, in a very otherwise low quality rock. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. So the so the oil then naturally flows towards the pipe, I guess, because you're you're reversing the pressure. Now the pipe is lower pressure than the rock around it. Yep, and so you can sort of think of it as trying to drain a soggy field, and that you're putting a pipe in the ground, and then you're letting that stuff flow to the pipe. And and a lot of times they also inject with the frac water sand, and that sand keeps the fractures open that you've created and keeps them from healing back up. Because you got to remember that this operation is all going on, you know, perhaps one to two miles underground. So there's a lot of rock above your well yeah. that is weighing down on your on your tiny little well bore, which could be only four inches in diameter, and uh, wants to seal that back up again. Huh. Gotcha. So so uh, there's obviously different types of oil. You mentioned before that the oil in South Dakota is not the same as the oil in Texas. So can you explain that a little bit further? Sure. Yeah. So oil is uh, a simple word, but it actually has a very wide spectrum of properties. So you can think of the natural oil deposits that you might find around the world as being anything from uh, the consistency of um, vegetable oil that you might get in the grocery store to the consistency of asphalt or tar. Mm. And so you can basically find natural deposits anywhere on the spectrum between something that's very um, smooth flowing and light colored and that's called light and sweet because it actually has a sweet taste to it if you're if you're the kind of person that likes to taste oils <laughs> all the way down to something that's called heavy and sour and so typically your tarry type oils are heavy and sour um, and they have a lot of sulfur in them and um, the value spectrum essentially goes from uh, the light and sweet crude being the most valuable that's the number that you'll hear reported on the news the West Texas Intermediate or the Brent Light Crude, that is sort of the benchmark crude. And then all crudes are priced in relation to that, usually as a discount because they're lower quality, all the way down to a heavy um, tarry type oil like you might get out of the tar sands in Canada or you might get out of Venezuela. They have a huge deposit of tar sands down there too. So the, the oil up in North Dakota, um, what would that be? Is it light and sweet or... It is light and sweet, and so it's a very high-value oil, and so that's why it's it's still there's still a lot of activity up there, even though the price of oil has come down a little bit. It's it's still quite a high-value commodity. Gotcha. So explain this to me, because I don't I have to admit I don't know a lot about oil other than paying attention to it in the markets. Right. What, or I guess how is oil valued the same or the oil that we see in gasoline or cooking like how do they make it all the same so that it can be used for the same purposes 
Um, so you start with this wide variety of natural material called oil or petroleum or crude oil, and then it gets shipped to a refinery through either a pipeline or an oil tanker. Um, in some cases, it's trucked if you're close enough uh, to a refinery. But at that refinery, you essentially put in whatever you've purchased, and then through a number of chemical processes that involve um, high temperatures and high pressures, you can break these big organic molecules into much smaller things um, that are much easier and more uniform in composition and easier to use, say, in a um, stove if you're burning natural gas or in your outdoor grill if, you're, if it uses propane or in your car if you're using gasoline. These are all essentially the same crude oil molecules, just different sizes. Gotcha. And one barrel of crude can produce X amount of gallons of, of gasoline, X amount gallons of diesel. I mean, when you, when you crack it, when you split it down yep. into the molecules, you're getting a whole bunch of different products out of that one organic petroleum product that you purchase, right? Exactly. And in fact, because of the change in volumes of these molecules, you actually get more than a barrel of products out at the uh, other end. It's really? kind of like... Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a slight volume uh, gain on the whole process. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you send a pig off to slaughter. You get a number of different parts from it. Yeah, but and they so never the same total with a, up to more than the weight of the pig. <laughs> if only they did. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I don't know, that might kill so, the market. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of markets, why do we see the influx of oil prices? I mean, obviously, exports and demand and supply have to do with it, but is there anything on the refining end that that uh, is is a factor in the market prices? Um, on the refining end, and in, in the oil industry, that's called the downstream end. The upstream is where you drill and bring oil to the surface of the earth. You have the midstream that brings it to the refinery, and downstream is the refinery. Um, it's very hard to build new refineries uh, nowadays because of the strict uh, regulations in terms of making sure that they're run cleanly. Uh, and so typically refineries get added onto and get made bigger and bigger. They're not getting built in new places. I think um, one, one, one exception to that is I believe Shell's building a new refinery in Pennsylvania to take advantage of some of the Marcellus shale uh, natural gas that's there. Um, but for the most part, it's refineries being made larger wherever they are. And in the United States, most of those refineries are on the Gulf Coast. So when we find new oil deposits, Often we have to build new infrastructure to get the crude down to the Gulf Coast. Which is where um, we see the Keystone Pipeline or the Dakota Access Pipeline through Iowa. All of those pipelines then are trying to get that oil down to the refiner. Exactly, exactly. The market is down on the Gulf Coast. That's where the most um, shipping comes in and out. And that's where all the biggest refineries in the United States are. In fact, in North America are. And so... Exactly. So they're trying to get that crude down to um, the Gulf Coast as inexpensively as possible. And um, it's less expensive to ship through a pipeline than to ship through other means. Gotcha. Now, I've got a question. As a petroleum geologist, you might be just the man to answer this. I've uh, <laughs> had the chance to travel all over quite a bit, and agricultural producers right now are struggling, right? We've got lower commodity prices, and everybody's looking for a way to generate some more revenue. And we know that the Permian Basin down in Texas and the, uh, oh, what, what's around Williston? What's that basin called? 
that's the Wilson Basin, the Bakken Formation. And the Bakken, that's right. And then the Marcellus, those are the three that have really, in Eagle Ford in Texas and some of those, that have really yep. captured a lot of headlines. But as I'm traveling, whether I'm in Kansas or southern Illinois, I see pump jacks. Is there yep. still legitimate uh, uh, oil underground in some of those places that we don't think about all that often? Uh, yeah, so Kansas and Illinois are the two closest um, petroleum-producing areas to Iowa. Iowa itself doesn't have any petroleum production. Are we sure but, about but, that, Doctor Hausch? Well, we the best our best guess is that we don't have any oil in the state. Um, <laughs> our, the rocks are sort of either too hot or too cold to have oil in them. Oh, okay. um, but that hasn't kept people from trying. There's been there's been a history of of oil exploration, but not a lot of oil discovery, I must say. Gotcha. I think the, the record is that we've produced 500 barrels total wow. of oil. That's it. And it was all used to pave, it was all used to pave a country road. <laughs> so it, um, okay. you know, we're not swimming in it here, but. So as but, we look uh, out at, at Kansas, at Illinois, is there any in mm -hmm. Ohio, I suppose? Probably some. Yes, eastern Ohio, where it, it butts up against uh, Pennsylvania. It's called the Utica Shale, which is a similar geology to the Marcellus Shale. Um, you know, the oil industry globally got started in western Pennsylvania, and so it naturally spread a little bit into Ohio. Gotcha. Northern Indiana, Michigan has a, a lot of oil production, but um, these these areas tend to be dominated more by what we call mom-and-pop oil companies or independent oil companies, so not not your big super majors like Exxon or Shell or Chevron. These are companies that you probably haven't heard of and may have someone's name uh, on the letterhead. Bill and so they mm. they're able, yep they have a they have a lower overhead so they can they can survive, you know, owning a couple wells or ten wells um, and making a go at it. And is that just because the oil in the formations in those geographies? isn't as fertile I don't, what do you call it when the oil when the the formation has oil in it impregnated with oil what <laughs> it, typically the deposits are just smaller there's not as much oil there so it might be you know one you need one well per square mile to drain that deposit um, whereas other places the big companies they like to get they like to get deposits that they can think about production in terms of hundreds of thousands of barrels per day. And, you know, smaller companies can get by with um, 100 barrels a day or 1,000 barrels a day would be fantastic. Gotcha. So it's sort of just the scales of the operation. Mm, that makes sense. So mm -hmm. we have – I have one more question for you before we mm -hmm. wrap it up. Looking out into the future, in, in your expert opinion, do you see – the possibility of us running out of oil? I mean, what does the future of the oil industry look like? Well, um, the future of the oil industry is is something that people have tried to predict for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, if you go back to the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, people were worried the oil industry was going to go out of business because there either wouldn't be enough oil because the deposits are running dry or there was too much oil because Edison just invented the light bulb. And the first big use for oil was actually as a, a lamp fuel. So they said, well, what are we going to do with all this extra crude we have? And then someone over in Germany invented an internal combustion engine. And the stuff that used to be 
um, that used to be the waste product, this stuff called gasoline, all of a sudden was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So with the huge industrial complex that's out there behind the oil industry, I'm sure it'll be able to come up with something to use the oil that we have as we go forward. Gotcha. And fertilizer, of course, is a, a crucial utilizer of uh, natural gas, producing that nitrogen. Exactly. And if you think about all the plastics we use in our daily lives, um, there's a there's a lot of good things that come from a barrel of oil that aren't just uh, going into the tank of your car or your tractor. All right. Well, Dr. Hafshuk, we'll, we'll let you get going, but uh, I hope we can pick this conversation up again later and uh, get into a little more detail in the world of oil. Hey, anytime. Thanks a lot. Thank you again so much to Fronick. Um, like I mentioned before, I met him actually on a shoot for the kids show I work for, and I just thought he would be a great fit for our show. He is, and, you know, I guess we've got some bad news for producers in Iowa and southern Minnesota. There's no oil underground. I was going to get out and drill a well and strike it rich, but I guess... (laughs) One more project. One more project for you. Yeah. All right, Delaney. Well, can you tell us what we have coming up tomorrow? Tomorrow we're talking to Margie from Farm Her and talking about the Farm Her movement. So I think she'll be a great interview. Perfect. Well, everybody, please stay tuned. Subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music or any place you get podcasts. And be sure to rate and review us so we can give you a big shout out on the air. Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 